Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Haas Talks Foss. I'm the Haas, Matt Yakovit, head of open source strategy here at Percona. Today, I'm joined by Dennis Magna from Yugabyte. Dennis, how are you doing? Feel great. Feel all right. How are you doing, Matt? Good, good. Now, Dennis, I don't know if you knew this, but we actually worked at the same company at the same time. No, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> serious, serious, serious. So, so Dennis doesn't know this, but I, I did look up his background. And while he was at Sun Microsystems, I was at Sun Microsystems. Oh. So uh, I was actually on the MySQL team when we got acquired mm -hmm. and then uh, was with uh, Sun uh, up until the Oracle acquisition. And then I left for Percona. Wow. Okay, do your ex-colleagues, excellent. Yes, you know, and we didn't I, even know it. No, no, I think that we, we have never met during the Sun days, because I met with some of their ex-MySQL <clears throat> folks. Uh, those days I used to live in uh, in Russia. We had mm -hmm. a, a Sun used to have a development center in Russia. And uh, many guys from the MySQL team uh, usually would come to that office. We would kind of have uh, nice conversations, etc. But uh, great to know that we were... Who knew? Who knew, right? Um, so, you know, I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what, what you're doing now is you're, you're in charge of DevRel at Yugabyte. You're in charge of the community outreach and getting people to, uh, you know, get excited and, and educated on, on what Yugabyte can do. Um, but you didn't start in the database space. You started in Java. You know, maybe tell us a little bit about what brought you to databases eventually and, and how that evolution worked. Yeah, the story, like my, 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 my professional career uh, is a little bit different. I started at, at Sun and at, at Oracle. And those days I was on the, one of the Java development teams. We basically, if, if, if you guys remember Java Micro edition of Java Embedded, uh, I was on the team. We were developing GVM and GDK for different mobile phones and uh, embedded devices. So generally, that was my team. Why I joined Oracle, why I decided to develop Java, because I was always curious about the internals. Before joining Oracle and Sun, I, I, I was a professional Java developer. I used to create different backend applications, web applications, etc. I played with mobile applications, but I always wanted to look inside. I was curious, like what it makes, what, what, what Java engineers do to make Java working in different, let's say, operating systems. And eventually, I, I was lucky enough, I passed an interview, I joined the development team, and uh, after that, I barely wrote code in Java, because when you're working on the porting team, you're literally taking the GDK and GVM, and you use C, C Sharp, or even assembly language to make sure that your GVM works on different uh, uh, microcontrollers and mobile devices. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I was happy. Uh, however, while I was uh, on that team, you know that like in Java, we can create several multiple threads and th those threads can execute different tasks in parallel using your like CPU, etc. The thing with the Java micro edition is that regardless of how many threads on the Java level you create, those threads will be mapped to a single operating system thread. So generally like you are not creating highly concurrent applications with mobile phones, it's like using Java Micro Edition, because probably it doesn't, it, it didn't make, make, didn't make any sense. But I was studying, like uh, during my free time, I was studying Java concurrency. I was just trying to create highly concurrent applications. And then when I decided to switch gears, I looked for different companies who were using Java, who were creating, let's say, some uh, cutting edge technologies 
and the, the companies who are was with an open source spirit. And that's how I came across uh, GridGain. GridGain is uh, one of the companies that is that donated Apache Ignite to the Apache Software Foundation, and they remain still one of the major contributors to the project and to the community. So Apache Ignite, for those who don't know, it's a distributed database for high-performance computing and memory. So that's what, what they do. And I joined this company, I joined GridGain, and I joined the Apache Ignite community uh, as a senior software engineer. I was contributing to the source code of Apache Ignite, to the networking layer, to the, uh, to the storage layer for more than a half a year, but then company kind of, and I myself, we decided I want to be, I want to be like uh, on the field. I want to talk to the users. I want to talk, mm. to, the yeah, yeah, yeah. talk to the customers. And that's basically what I used to do at Sun when I was on the, uh, I belong to the so-called Sun Campus Ambassador Program. It's when I was one of the Sun Campus Ambassadors evangelist at my university. I was helping developers and, and graduates to learn Java and, other some technologies. And that's something that I want I I started to realize at Greek Gain. And that's why I joined, let's say I was I, I, I tasted and tried many roles at that company. I was in the support team. I was on the customer uh, on the salute on the professional services team. And eventually then I was leading the product management and marketing. Uh, however, my last two or three years I was leading the developer relations for Greek Gain and for Apache Ignite, Apache Ignite. Uh, throughout, uh, like last five, six, seven years, became one of the top five projects of the Apache Software Foundation. I like this community. I love these guys. I wish them luck. But eventually, you know, I sensed that I need to move forward. I want to explore something else. I wanted to remain within, let's say, uh, the database area, and that's how I came across Yugabyte. So right now, I am with Yugabyte. That's my third month in a row. So I'm really new. Yeah, I knew, knew. Uh, yep, yep. But uh, I'm excited. I mean, like we have a lot of things to do here. And uh, I think that developers, and after I joined the company, I see that developers truly can benefit from distributed databases such as Yugabyte. But Yugabyte is not the only one, right? And that's good because you always have to have a comp competition in the market. Only this way you can, let's say, innovate faster. And you can listen to your developers, to your users. So that's my quick story, how I ended up from a, a Java engineer uh, and uh, to, Java engineer to on the head yes. of the, uh, in a database company. Yes. No, no. And I mean, it's an interesting journey because, I mean, you know, obviously Apache Ignite's database, it's just a different type of database than Postgres. So it's a little bit different to get used to. Um, and so I'm sure that that was a, a bit of a, a switch. But I mean, relational databases have been around for so long, it's it's not that difficult uh, to make that kind of migration from where you were. Now, I am curious, for those who are listening, many people might not have heard about what distributed SQL is. I know what it is, but maybe you could just give an overview of distributed SQL for us, just for those listeners who might be new to this space. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's probably the best question to start with, right? If you want to talk about distributed SQL databases. So my, my explanation is, is, uh, is, is quite straightforward. All of us, we like, if, if you have ever created any like web application or mobile, at least a web application, enterprise application, you usually, it's the chances are high that you use the relational database. It could it could be Postgres, it could be Oracle, MySQL, IBM DB2, or any 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 other. 
And uh, you usually use what? You use SQL statements, you use joins, you use stored procedures, you use uh, different triggers, because that's how you, how we historically were introducing different functionality and how we kind of requested and processed data that resided in our databases. And when it comes to the distributed SQL, the concept is, is, is simple. So you still have the same SQL, the same joins, the same stored procedures, the same triggers, the same transactions with the same isolation levels, but right now you want them to work at a global scale. And if when we're talking about the global scale, if to take an example over, let's say, over standard single server relational database, we can take Postgres as an example. It usually runs in, on, on one instance, right? On one virtual machine, on one physical server. And, just, and your application, once the application connects to this server, it can start like issuing SQL requests, trigger different stored procedures, etc. But when we are talking about distributed SQL, you also have your uh, relational database, but right now it spans across multiple nodes. You can have five node cluster, you can have 10 node cluster, 15 node clusters. Those nodes can reside, if we're talking about the cloud, they can reside in the same, let's say, availability zone or in the same region. All those nodes can spread across multiple regions if you want to survive, let's say, different outages. But regardless of that, for you, regardless of the deployment mode of your database, for the application, uh, you know, the experience remains the same. The application still usually connects with a single endpoint. Even if you have, let's say, 10 or 50 nodes cluster, your application still connects to this cluster with one IP address. And then the magic happens uh, on, on, uh, on the database layer. Your application keeps sending the same SQL statements, the same joins, the same transactions. But right now, if you execute any transaction and that transaction spans multiple nodes, then the database is responsible for the consistency, atomicity, and other characteristics of uh, the transactional processing. So generally speaking, to make things short, distributed SQL is the same SQL you're familiar with, and there are many, but there are many dialects you might be dealing with, let's say, a distributed database that, uh, you know, just supports like NC99 or NC2011 compliant, or you can be dealing with a database that is more like that wants to be compliant with Postgres dialect or MySQL dialect. But eventually from the application developer standpoint, it's the same SQL, right? You, you execute them and ideally most of the queries and most of the features should work out. Now, a little bit deeper into that, one of the, the the big things, though, is architecturally, it is different than standard Postgres or even other clusters because it's more uh, reliant on uh, uh, sharding in the back end, correct? Like, so so data isn't, it's not a, a, a share everything, right? Because everything's not on every node. So, you know, there are clustered systems or replicas that you can build that will have a copy of every database on every one. But when you're talking about when you have five, 15 node cluster, each of those nodes in the cluster contains a portion of the data, uh, correct? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's it's more uh, akin to, um, you know, a MongoDB type architecture in the back end than it is, uh, you know, to, you know, like MySQL's clustering, um, you know, their InnoDB cluster or uh, a Galera cluster in MySQL <laughs> or, um, you know, things like that. And, and I guess it follows a similar pattern to Citus. Um, in that regard, does it? Um, yeah, 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 exactly. There are a lot of similarities, even though there are also differences. If just if to compare, we, we will, like during my session, we can discuss what the difference between different databases. 
But generally, you are right. When we are talking uh, about a distributed database, usually the data is partitioned. You mentioned MongoDB. Cassandra is also a good example, but from the NoSQL space. Yugabyte uh, uh, and CockroachDB, they also shard your data, like partition. We, we use the term partitioning. It's when, let's say, you have uh, 10 nodes in your cluster and you have 1 million records. And then the partitioning algorithm makes sure that all those 1 million records are spread uh, uniformly uh, across the cluster. So like each node ideally keeps this like, like 200, like 20,000 uh, records and that 20,000, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what, what happens. But uh, also uh, some of the, we have, and, and generally like when, when, you, when you partition or shard the data this way, you also need to have the, uh, query layer, the layer that re receives your requests, and then that query layer knows how to, like what node is responsible, uh, what node should be involved in the processing of your query. In case of, let's say, I can, when it comes to, for instance, Apache Ignite, right? Because Apache Ignite, same as Yugabyte, or same as Cassandra, MongoDB, and Apache Ignite, it also shards or partitions data across a cluster of machines. However, when you, let's say, execute a SQL query with Apache Ignite, this SQL query will be like sent to all of your kind of nodes because on every node, you have a single process. Basically, that process is your storage plus your processing layer. In Yugabyte, the architecture is a little bit different. We have two different processes. We have so-called table, tablet server. That's a process that is, that that's your data storage. That's where your data resides and that's the, uh, it's sort of a container for your data processing. But on top of it, we have the query layer, and it's also highly scalable, it's uh, resilient, etc. That's uh, We call it the master process. You have replicas of that master, and the, actually the master usually uh, is aware about of the data distribution in your cluster. It executes, whenever you execute any DTL statements, all the requests go through that master. Uh, but when you start using your Yugabyte DB cluster, like inserts, selects, deletes, then usually your queries will start going directly to your uh, tablet servers, like to your tablet processes, because those can cache data. They know how the data is distributed. There are some caching uh, algorithms involved on in regards to the data distribution. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, the the similarities or, you know, some of the, the, the backgrounds with Cassandra, which is funny because the CTO at Yugabyte was one of the original creators of that project when he was at Facebook, right? So Karthik, who's been on our podcast here as well, um, <laughs> you know, and talked a little bit about the good old days there, um, you know, that that makes a lot of sense uh, that there would be some similarities. Um, now, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, you know, is is distributed SQL for every application? Is it something that is overkill in your opinion on some applications or does it, is it something that you could start with and then ease into kind of that uh, larger scale setup? Because distributed SQL tends to be really good at mass scale, but um, a lot of people might start with just a standard Postgres and do that migration. So I'm curious your take on that. You know, so here is a like uh, a recommendation uh of Google. They have Google Spanner, which is a distributed SQL database. And also they have other different Google uh, SQL Cloud offerings when they run services for MySQL, Postgres, etc. And their recommendation is this, guys, 
usually you use Google Spanner when you need scale and they, they usually judge by the amount of data you need. Let's say if you need, uh, let's say, global resiliency, if you need to comply with data residency requirements so that your database instance keeps European citizens' data in Europe and never uh, writes this data to America, then you use Google Spanner or if you need to keep uh, petabytes of data. In other cases, probably explore our Cloud SQL fields. And my recommendation, when it comes, let's say, to PostgreSQL, uh, vanilla Postgres, or to YugaBytedB, or any other Postgres compliant database, just do your homework. Do you really need this scale right now? But also think, when you're thinking about now, you have to think about the future. What happens with your application? What happens with your team? What happens with your department, let's say, in a year from now, in two years from now? For instance, if you if you expect that your application has to work across global scale, if your application has to will be having customers in Asia, in Australia, in Europe, uh, and it's inevitable that at some point in time you would need to have let's say multiple Postgres instances, or you need to arrange different Postgres sharding techniques on your own. And at this point, yeah, I mean probably you need to start with a distributed database, but that first deployment can be small. So generally, the first recommendation. Remain with Postgres if all the data that will fit in, into a single server machine and you do not expect that, let's say, you would need to, you would have a much bigger load, a much bigger, you would need any much bigger capacity in the, in the next, let's say, five like plus years. Uh, but in other cases, let's say, even if you think that right now everything can fit nicely in Postgres, but in two, three, five years, you will be running across the globe or you will be having much bigger load, et cetera, then probably start with a distributed uh, SQL database or like Amazon Aurora, which basically uh, another kind of way of transitioning from the standard relational databases because they have a single write, right? Like all the writes go to one node and you cannot, score, you cannot basically scale beyond the capacity of that node, but at least you have read replicas and those read replicas will help you to remain resilient and they can be deployed in different regions closer to your customers. So okay. that's that's my thinking. Okay. Well, and, and so the, those who are listening, you know, uh, Dennis, you alluded to something, uh, but we didn't talk about it, which is uh, you said, oh, I'll be discussing this during my talk. Um, so yes, uh, Dennis is going to be at Procona Live. He's going to be talking about uh, the SQL compatibility um, between different databases uh, in the distributed SQL space. Uh, and, and it's interesting. I don't consider Aurora distributed SQL. I mean, that's just me. Uh, I think it's outside. I think Yugabyte, Cockroach, um, Spanner are, are different architecture than Aurora is personally. But, um, you, you know, you mentioned the word compatible. And this is what's going to be kind of interesting is the compatibility of each of the, 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 the different databases that are out there. Um, it varies, right? So, you know, like some might have 60% compatibility, some might have 99% compatibility, but it's going to vary depending on the implementation. And there are some things that may or may not work. Um, and I think that's one thing that uh, is, is interesting and it should be a really good talk. And I'm looking forward to kind of listening in on that to see where that is um, as you kind of go through that ecosystem and talk about the nuances. Sometimes it doesn't matter because it could be, you know, most of the normal features are used. And so nobody uses these really edge cases. Uh -huh. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about Amazon Aurora, uh, we are on the same page here. Amazon Aurora is scalable. It's just, you know, a scalable solution for Postgres, but it's not a distributed database. 
at least also in my thinking, just, just my, my personal opinion. Forgive me, Amazon Fox, if you disagree. Uh, just because, let's say, it's, it's a great uh, solution if you need to scale your reads and you want to uh, tolerate different region-level outages. That's what Amazon Aurora is designed for. But it does not design for if you need to outgrow your single server capacity. For instance, let's say your master node that accepts writes has is capable of keeping on the how many like 30 terabytes of data, but you need 50 terabytes. And if Amazon doesn't is is not able to provide this machine, you don't have a choice. Yes, yeah, that's that's the thing. Talking about the compatibility, yeah, but it's, uh, one one kind of. Uh, First, first kind of reminder. There is no any, the only 100% compatible database with Postgres is Postgres. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All the other vendors, all the other databases, some of them are trying harder to be like to achieve a higher compatibility level. But when I will be talking about uh, compatibility, Postgres com compatibility, I will be using the language of High compatible, lower compatible, etc. But remember, the only 100% compatible database is Postgres itself. That's, uh, and we will be discussed. You're right. Like you cannot just you know select one criteria and judge by that criteria all the databases. It's unfair, and we don't want to diminish uh, companies who like. I, I work for Yugabyte, right? But I want to be authentic. I don't want to disguise folks. I don't want to to mean to diminish. Uh, com competing technologies. We will be using four different uh, uh, features or criteria. The first one is wire compatibility. It's when can I connect to this Postgres compliant database, let's say this PG admin or any other tool, and execute some commands that I, I've been using for ages. For instance, I want to connect, let's say, to Google Spanner, and I want to uh, see their structure of my database, the schema, the tables, indexes, etc. And that's the wire compatibility, just the ability to connect and use the Postgres networking protocol. It's all about, let's say, ability to deserialize messages, network packages uh, that are serialized and uh, according to the Postgres networking layer. That's the wire compatibility. The next one is syntax compatibility. It's I have an application, and this application is uh, designed to work with Postgres. I, I heavily use Postgres syntax. After connecting to your Postgres compliant database, which is wire compliant, for instance, will I be able to use the same Postgres syntax, or I have to switch, let's say, to another SQL version of your database? That also matters a lot, and that helps. And that, if you are, if you try hard to support at least the Postgres SQL, then many of your application developers can be successful uh, during, let's say, the, like, the lift and shift exercise. I have an application. I want to move this application to Postgres. The third one is feature compatibility. You have wire, you have compatibility, you have syntax compatibility, but what's about features? Because Postgres, one of the reasons why Postgres is gaining so much popularity these years is it's one of the most feature-rich open source relational databases. They have certainly some basic stuff like stored procedures, materialized views, triggers, etc. But also, unlike other databases, not like I cannot speak for other databases, but they support features that usually do not exist in every relational database like uh, uh, JSON, like full text search, like time series, 
uh, and other some document-based queries. That's what Postgres has. And you have, let's say, an army of application developers who use all those features, like not probably not us, and they want to move. And then your Postgres compliant database will be judged by this criteria. How are you feature compatible with Postgres? High are you yeah. Are you considering feature compatibility uh, compatibility with extensions, or is extensions separate from that? Because sometimes features are considered, you know, synonymous with extensions. Sometimes they're not. Postgres has a really rich extension ecosystem, but they're not part of the core Postgres, right? So uh, yeah, it's a little fuzzy. Yeah, that's that's the fair question. I mean, extensions are, extensions also have to be included. I mean, when even when I'm talking about Yugabyte, right, as a Yugabyte employee. We are not 100% compatible with Postgres, right? Obviously, we are not Postgres, but we are reusing Postgres source code as much as we can. And uh, But when it comes, let's say, we are reusing the Postgres query layer, but our storage layer is different. We use different mm -hmm. storage technology. Mm -hmm. That's why when you're talking about, the, about extensions that were created for the query layer and not for the storage layer, it is highly likely that they will work without any issues in Yugabyte. But if you created any extension for the Postgres storage layer, then it's highly likely that it will not fly on Yugabyte DB because our mm. storage architecture is different. Yeah. And finally, what's the fourth one? Yeah. yeah. The final one is runtime run compatibility. Is mm. what actually does your application behave similar to Postgres? Like how your query executes, mm -hmm. what's the, the the right path or read path for your query? Do we use, let's say, uh, what's what's your planner? What's your optimizer? What's your executor? And uh, generally, that's probably the hardest test because once it's usually, if you are, if you have a high level compatibility for the syntax and features of Postgres, then the lift and shift exercise should be smooth. You just take your application, and you just change the connection endpoint, you connect it to another database, and you can use all these drivers. That's one of the biggest uh, benefits if you're compatible, if you have a wire syntax and uh, feature compatibility. Use the drivers and you are good to go. You don't need to create your own bicycle. But the runtime is like how you're going to be tested in production. Because like if your queries, if you start, some of the queries start fail, some of the uh, indexes don't work as expected, etc., then so it also happens. Yeah. No, it, it, it's it's interesting because Postgres is becoming such a, a a a kind of the base ingredient for so many new databases, right? Um, it's 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 so interesting because people are approaching this slightly different. So Yugabyte, for instance, you, you took the the client side and kept it, and then replaced the back end so you could do the distributed. But I know I just uh, heard, you know, I was at Postgres Silicon Valley last week. Uh, EdgeDB was talking about their their stuff where they're putting basically like a GraphQL interface over the top of Postgres um, and doing some things there. I know FerretDB is building a MongoDB compatibility layer on top mm -hmm. of the storage for for Mong, uh, for Postgres. So you've got like lots of different people starting with Postgres and then extending Postgres to do things that are really cool and innovative. But Postgres seems to be kind of that that seed, uh, you know, uh, component uh, that people are starting to build around, which is really cool, especially if you already know Postgres, it makes it easier to start to get involved and jump into these different technologies. Uh, but it is such a solid um, awesome core that it makes it easier for people uh, to develop those cool things.
You know, uh, I I also had a similar question when I decided to join Yugabyte and, and start working actively with the Postgres community and uh, Postgres developers, because uh, I always hear that like so someone told me like I was watching one of the representations of uh, Yugabyte professionals and they were showing let's say that accelerated rise and growth of Postgres. If you go to the DB Engines uh, website that we usually go just to see like uh, what are the top most popular databases, Postgres is in the top five list, not in the top first, but his growth is probably one of the fastest. And I was thinking like, why, why, why this happened? And then I checked the other, let's say top, top, top four databases, so like top six. We had Oracle, we, have, we had MySQL, we have SQL Server by Microsoft, etc. And what uh, struck with me is, it sounds like Postgres is Linux of their relational databases. Linux is one of the operating systems that is governed by a true open source community. That open source community is not under control of any other specific vendor. You have the Linux core, right? But out of that Linux core, we have different Linux distributions. We have Ubuntu, CentOS, Red Hat, etc., etc. But the core doesn't belong to anybody. Even if you, let's say, Red Hat or like uh, any other company, want to introduce something to Linux core, you will be dealing directly with community, and community will pull you down. And that's, I think, the same happened with Postgres. We know that, unfortunately, like MySQL still, even though that's an open source database, it's governed like by Oracle. We have Oracle database, we have IBM DB2, etc. All those databases belong to some vendors. But Postgres is an open source driven project. And uh, I also was, I was, I joined, I joined uh, also the Silicon Valley's conference. I think we missed each other a week ago. And I was on one of the sessions where a Postgres, a Postgres veteran was talking about, let's say, some situations, some people, some companies, like big companies, small companies, scam, they want to introduce some features to the Postgres, but usually the community says, first, you need to come and talk to us using our protocols, you need to use our channels. Some people, you know, just are not happy that uh, the Postgres community uses, let's say, some dinosaur-style uh, mailing lists, so like, uh, I don't know what was that. But that's the way they interact because that's quite similar to the Apache Software Foundation. I heard a lot like, hey, guys at Apache, why don't you use, let's say, Slack? Why don't you use that? Why do you use this old-fashioned mailing list? That's how things work because our contributors sit around the world and they cannot answer everything instantaneously. Another thing that whenever I want, probably someone introduced a feature into Postgres or like Apache Ignite. And only, let's say, a year ago, I want to go back to that discussion and I want to see what happened, like why, how a conversation in the community led to this decision. And that's extremely easy to do with mailing this. And that helps, let's say, just to balance the speed of innovation and quality of the product and also kind of push back vendors who are too aggressive, who want to come and take control of the community. And luckily, what I see, that did not happen with Linux. And as far as I understand, it didn't happen to Postgres. That's why with Postgres, we see, I think we have this proliferated growth and we have so many companies, big companies, enterprise vendors using, introducing new products, new solutions that reuse Postgres as a core. We have Amazon Aurora, Google Spanner. It's like in October last year in 2021, then they announced that they are going to, they, they, they are supporting Postgres, Postgres dialect. And that's a big signal. Even Google recognizes this. So that's so that's my thinking. I think that Postgres became the Linux of relational databases uh, thanks to its uh, true open source community 
the policies, the governments, etc. Yeah, no, that's an interesting take. And uh, with that, we're, we're we're running out of time here. So I wanted to thank you for coming on today, chatting with us, giving us a little preview of your talk, talking about your background, and giving us some information on Yugabyte and uh, where it fits into the ecosystem. It's been great chatting with you today. Thanks, man. It was it was a pleasant conversation. And for those listening, we would love it if you come out to Percona Live and see us out there. Dennis will be there. He'll be giving a talk. Um, it is uh, May 16th through 18th, um, and you can see it there. We'll also have some sessions online. Uh, there'll be some things that show up uh, after the session as, or after the conference as well. Uh, but if you do like this kind of content, please make sure you subscribe, like to the YouTube channel, uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, um, and let us know. Put comments in the comment section of your favorite app and let us know what we can do, who we can bring on, who we should talk to, what topics we should cover. We're always interested in what you have to say. Until next time, this is Matt. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe. Wow, what a great episode that was. We really appreciate you coming and checking it out. We hope that you love open source as much as we do. If you like this video, go ahead and subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And of course, tune in to next week's episode. We really appreciate you coming and talking open source with us.